Take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Kings chapter 13. 1 Kings chapter 13. I heard a story about three little boys that were on the playground. And uh, they were standing there in the schoolyard. And, of course, boys always want to brag on their dads. And so the first little boy, he says, you know, my dad scribbles a few words on a piece of paper. He calls it a poem, and they pay him $50. And the second little boy, he said, well, that's nothing. You know, my, my dad, he, he scribbles a few words on a piece of paper. He calls it a song, and they give him $100. And that third little boy, he sat there listening to them talk, and he decided it was his turn to pipe up, and he said, boy, I've got you both beat. My dad scribbles a few words on a piece of paper. He calls it a sermon, and it takes four people to take up the amount of money they bring in for him. It would be nice if it worked that way. Well, you know, just in a, in a few short days now, this new year will be upon us. And I thought about trying to do something clever, you know, 2020, 2020 vision or something like that, you know. But I, I, my thoughts just kept being drawn back to this passage here in 1 Kings chapter 13. And in this story, and it's, it's, it's not one of the more familiar stories. You've probably heard it before if you've read the Bible for any length of time. It's not Daniel in the lion's den. It's not David and Goliath. It's not one of those that we would consider more well-known stories. But a young man of God has been sent by God to cry out against the false altar, the, the abominations of King Jeroboam. And in the northern kingdom, which is where this takes place, a lot of, none of the kings, none of the kings served God the way that, that they should have served God. And so uh, this is a story that we see how God can use an individual to accomplish his purpose. And as you go through the first half of this unnamed preacher, we're not given his name in this passage, um, you go through the, the, the story about this unnamed preacher, and you, you find several admirable qualities, I guess we could say, and necessary attributes for somebody who wants to serve the Lord. Let's look at the passage here. First, first Kings chapter 13 and verse number one, it says, And behold, there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. And he cried against the altar in the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord, behold, a child shall be born into the house of David, Josiah by name. And upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord hath spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent, and the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out. And it came to pass, when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, which had cried against the altar in Bethel, that he put forth his hand from the altar, saying, Lay hold on him. And his hand, which he put forth against him, dried up so that he could not pull it in again to him. The altar also was rent, and the ashes poured out from the altar, and according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king answered and said unto the man of God, Entreat now the face of the Lord thy God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored me again. And the man of God besought the Lord, and the king's hand was restored him again, and became as it was before. And the king said unto the man of God, Come home with me and refresh thyself, and I will give thee a reward. The man of God said unto the king, if thou wilt give me half thine house, I will not go in after thee. I will not go in with thee. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so was it charged me by the word of the Lord, saying, Eat no bread, nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way that thou camest. So he went another way, and returned not by the way that he came to Bethel. He was a prophet, preacher, if you will. But he was willing to be used by God. He was willing to be a servant of God. 
God has servants in many capacities, not just in the ranks of pastor or missionary. And, you know, we often speak about somebody going into full-time service. And what we mean by that is somebody goes to become a pastor full-time. But I think we make such a mistake when we do that because it makes it sound like full-time Christian service is something for a pastor or something for a missionary. Full-time Christian service is for a Christian. We all should be full-time Christian servants. We ought to be Christian servants with every bit of our life, not just on Sundays, not just when we feel spiritual. We are supposed to be full-time Christian servants with our entire life. And quite honestly, God has a purpose and a plan for every person that calls themselves a Christian. And of course, not every person that calls themselves a Christian is. Only those who have come by the way of the cross, those who have know Jesus Christ as their Savior, is a Christian. But once you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, then God has a plan for your life. Something that he wants you to accomplish as a Christian. Do you want to be a Christian that God can and will use? That's the question this morning. What a great goal for 2020. Everything in the Bible is there for a reason. And this story happens to be in the Old Testament, but what an example we are given to try to follow. Uh, so what are, what are some characteristics that are admirable and necessary for those who desire to serve the Lord? That's the question this morning. So what I want to share with you this morning is six attributes that make a good servant of God. Six attributes that make a good servant of God. Let's pray, and then we'll look at this passage and some others to look at these attributes. Father, we love you. Give me thank you so much for how good you are to us. Thank you for a good year in 2019. God, you've blessed in so many ways, and I know sometimes we go through things that are difficult. Sometimes we, we focus on the negatives, and, but boy, if we look back at all the things that you've done for us this year, they far outweigh the things that could be looked at as things that are bad, things that could be looked at as things that are disappointing or whatever else. So many things that you've done for us, God, and we can't even start to list all of them. We're excited about what you want to do in this coming year. But God, I pray more importantly that our lives would be what you want them to be, that we'd be servants that you can use. And God, I pray that we, as we look at these things this morning that we could see and, and reflect and, and try to mirror these attributes in our own lives so that we can be used in the way that this man was used in this example that we have here in the Bible this morning. Thank you for what you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the first thing about this man, this preacher, this prophet was this, he was concealed. And if you notice in 1 Kings chapter 13 and verse number 1, it says, and behold, there came a man of God out of Judah. Now this passage starts with this man's introduction. Everybody tell me what this man's name is, according to verse number 1. We don't have it, do we? There is no name given for this man. He was not the great fill in the blank with his name. He was a man of God, and that's it. He was concealed in that way. We're not given this man's name. Uh, no doubt the reason for that was because his name was not important. Not, not that it was not important to God. God certainly knew who he was. God called him to do that. But obviously this man was willing to do what needed to be done, whether he was given the recognition for that or not. And you know, his mission was important, not his name. And that's a desirable attribute of, of, of an individual uh, is that he didn't have to be well-known. He didn't have to be recognized. And, you know, he, he was known for his walk with God. He was called a man of God. He, the, the, notice the Bible doesn't just say that, well, this guy came and went and did this work. He was a man of God. He was willing to be used by God, and he didn't care if his name was mentioned or not. He wanted to be known, and he was known as a man of God. Oh, that we would have more servants of God who are willing to, to serve, not to be noticed, but to glorify God. And so many, you know, I, I, the, the problem with so many Christians is that they're not willing to serve unless they get recognition for it. 
And I'm, I'm thankful to have a church full of people who are willing to serve God whether they get recognized or not. I try to recognize what you do. I, I do recognize what you do for the most part. For, for the most part, and and what you do is invaluable in this church, and what you do is invaluable in the service of God. But that not ought not to be our motivation. We ought to be serving God because we want God to be glorified. We want to be doing the will of God. We want to please God with what we're doing, not because we get recognized, but because we want Him to get the glory for it. Ronald Reagan is very well known for saying this: "There is no limit to the amount of good that you can do if you don't care who gets the credit." There's no limit to the amount of good that you can do if you don't care who gets the credit. And, of course, he was talking about that in a secular sense. He was talking about it in a, maybe a business sense. But, boy, it fits perfectly with what we're talking about here, with doing what God wants us to do for our lives. We can serve God, and there's no telling to the amount of service that we can give to God and to his church and to his service if we don't care who or whether or not we get the credit for that. Because I can tell you this, God's making a list of all of those things in heaven. You're going to get the credit for it. It just matters. It's just a matter of whether we get it here on this earth or whether we get it in heaven. And it matters so much more that we get that credit in heaven rather than we get it on earth. You know, God judges our motives. If we're doing service to God because we want to do it so that we can, we can get recognized by people, God doesn't recognize that. Our motives have to be right, not just our actions. But there, there are so many Christians who are talented that, that could be greatly used by God, but because they're more concerned with their talents being recognized and their Savior being glorified, God doesn't use them near to the capacity, if at all, but near to the capacity that, that they could be used. I don't want God to pass on me because I want to be noticed by men. I would rather be noticed and used by God. And that's the attribute of a servant of God. That's why this servant of God was used. He was concealed, but secondly, he was commissioned. 1 Kings chapter 13 and verse number 1 also tells us this in the second half of the passage, uh, second half of the verse. Behold, there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. This unnamed servant of God was not outdoing his own will. He was, he was doing the will of God. He was called by God to do this, and he decided that he was just going to get it done. This man was sent by the word of the Lord. He was commissioned. Now turn over to Mark chapter 16. Keep your finger there in 1 Kings chapter 13. We're coming back to that. But the work of God is important, but being in the will of God is paramount. It's the most important thing. Uh, the sad thing is, I, I have a feeling that there's many missionaries over-serving on foreign fields who are not in the will of God. Are they doing a good thing? Yes, they're trying to serve God. But if you're not doing it in the will of God, then, then it doesn't matter how good the work is. You're, you're, not, you're not in God's will. And God can't bless that. It's, it's a noble thing to want to be a pastor. It's a noble thing to want to be a missionary. It's a noble thing to want to, to serve God in, in a capacity like that. But if that's not what God's called you to do, then you're outside of the will of God just as much as somebody who God has called to be a pastor who ran away from that call. God has a will for every single one of our lives. And we, we focus so often, and especially with young people, God's, do God's will for your life. If God's calling you to be a pastor, you better surrender and do God's will. But you know what? There's so many times when God wants somebody to be a, a doctor or God wants somebody to be an, an usher or God wants somebody to be a fill in the blank of something that he needs to have done in the church, and we run away from that call, and we step outside of God's will for our lives. This man 
was commissioned. And so are we. The Bible says in Mark chapter 16 and verse number 15, and he said unto them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That wasn't just to pastors. He wasn't talking to a group of pastors. He was talking to a group of fishermen, tax collectors, people who were in other professions. He said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Proclaim the gospel to every creature. We've been given a very important responsibility. We've been commissioned to carry Christianity to the next generation. Do you realize that Christianity is only one generation away from extinction? Now, the Bible will never go away. The word of God will last forever. The gospel will last forever. But Christianity as we know it could literally be gone in one generation. If a generation of Christians does not carry on that message of the gospel and spread the message of the gospel to the next generation, then we lose Christianity as we know it. Oh, that would never happen. It's happening. We are losing Christianity. We're losing the message of the gospel. So many people are trying to be so like the world that they've forgotten about the commission that they've been given to go out and to preach the gospel, to go out and to be a witness for Jesus Christ. If we don't take up the cause of sharing the gospel, it's not going to go forth the way that God intended for it to go forth. Now, obviously, this is a story that's just been told to illustrate the commission that Jesus gave us, but the story goes that when Jesus returned to heaven, following his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, and the angels gathered around in amazement, and they, they gazed at the wounds in his hand, and they gazed at the wounds in his feet, and they saw the hole in his side where the spear had been shoved up in there, and they recalled the suffering that Jesus went through on the cross. Finally, Gabriel spoke, and he said, Master, you suffered terribly down there. Do, you, do, you, do they know and appreciate the extent of your sacrifice? Jesus said, no. Right now, only a handful of people in Palestine even know. And, and Gabriel said, then, then what have you done to let everybody else know? And Jesus said, well, I've asked Peter and James and John and a few others to spread the news. They'll, they'll tell others who will tell others, and the message will eventually spread to all the corners of the earth. And Gabriel, knowing the nature of human beings, looked at Jesus and he said, what's plan B? And Jesus said, I have no plan B. I've got no other alternative strategy. I'm counting on them. And obviously that's a fictional story. We don't have that record in the Bible. But 21 centuries later, he still only has us. He gave us that commission. And it's our responsibility, it's our job to make sure that the message of the gospel reaches all four corners of the earth. Sadly, so many Christians step outside of the will of God for their lives because they're pursuing money or they're pursuing pleasure or they're pursuing something that's taken up their thoughts and taken up their minds more than doing the will of God. We've been given a great commission, and that is to spread the message of the gospel. This man was concealed. He was commissioned, but also, and turned back over into 1 Kings chapter 13, he was confined and by that I mean this, in 1 Kings chapter 13 and verse 2, and it says, And he cried against the altar in the word of the Lord. This servant of God didn't speak his own thoughts. He didn't share his own philosophy. He was confined. His message was not his own message. His message was the message that God gave him to share with King Jeroboam. He spoke, Thus saith the Lord. And that's what a mark of a true servant of God is, is their message. They're not going to preach all their philosophies. They're not going to preach all their ideas. They're not going to preach all of these other things. They're going to preach what the Bible says. 
I was speaking with somebody just a couple days ago, and unfortunately, um, it, was, uh, it was a call out that I had taken as a chaplain. Um, this young man, I say young man, he was 41 years old, had overdosed on December the 6th, and they just found him on December the 28th, or whatever that, what, it, what is today? Today's the 29th, it was the 27th. He'd been there for quite some time. And his sister and his mom had come down from Spotsylvania. They didn't have a lot of contact with him. And so it was kind of one of those things where they didn't know if they should do something or not. And they, they finally decided to try to do something. They came down from Spotsylvania. And, of course, they got the police involved. And the police came over and found this man there. And I've never had anybody ask me this before. But we stood there. And she asked me point blank. She said, do you think he's in heaven? I'm not going to put somebody in heaven that I don't know is in heaven, so I'm not going to say, yes, I believe he's there if I don't know. I don't know. But it gave me a tremendous opportunity to share the message of the gospel with this lady and tell her how she could know for sure that she was going to heaven. And she said, well, you know, I just, she said, I don't know if he went, I don't know if he did all of that stuff. I don't think he was ever baptized, which obviously baptism has nothing to do with salvation anyway. I told her that. She said, I don't know if he went through all of the stuff that you're talking about or not, but you know, he might have been a lost soul, but I think God would have recognized that and realized that his heart was good and probably led him into heaven. And I said, well, I, I can't speak one way or the other to that. I said, there's a lot of people who come up with a lot of different ideas. And they've, added, they've injected a lot of their own philosophies and their own thoughts on it. They've written their own Bibles and everything else. I said, there's one book that we have to go off of. I said, God gets nothing by us following this. No, the authors that wrote the Bible, that wrote what God wanted them to write, are not making money off of it like many of these other people out there making money off of the books that they write to tell people how to live. I said, all we have to go off of is the Bible, and that's the absolute truth. And that's why I say, we're confined to the message of the gospel. We have to preach what the message of the gospel is, and that's it. We don't need to add baptism to it. We don't need to add good works to it. We don't need to add all of these confessions to priests and all of these other things. We don't need those things. Those are not in the Bible. Our message should be confined to what the Bible says, and that's exactly why this young man, I say young man, I don't know if he was young or not, but why this man that we have here in 1 Kings chapter 13 was used by God. God told him, say this, and he said, thus saith the Lord. He was concealed he was commissioned, he was confined, but number, th number four, he was courageous. First Kings chapter 13, verse number three. Now, you've got to remember what we're talking about here. This is back in the day when a king could say, get this guy's head off, and they would go take his head off in a heartbeat. They had that absolute power. And here this man is coming to talk to the king of all of the land of Judah, and he's going to give him a very bold message. He's going to condemn the king. He's going to condemn the things that this king is doing in the name of Jesus Christ, which obviously you read through this passage, he's, and Jeroboam says later on, ask your God to take this away. It was not Jeroboam's God. Jeroboam didn't care about the God of Israel. And now here this man has to go tell the king, point blank, this is what God said to do. That took a lot of courage. It says in 1 Kings chapter 13 and verse number 3, and he gave a sign the same day saying, this is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent, and the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out. The man of God didn't blush, he didn't back up, he didn't, he didn't check for consensus. He was bold, he was brave to, to go and, and stand before this king and give the message that God told him to give, and he spoke with authority. He was standing on the word of God. And, you know, every true servant of God should have a holy boldness about them. Are we going to be rejected? Absolutely. 
Are we going to be criticized and made fun of sometimes? Absolutely. Are we going to be laughed at? Absolutely. But we don't have to worry about what happens to us. And, of course, we can say this in America. It's so easy for us to say about being bold. There's people all over the world. In fact, on Christmas Day, they, they executed, uh, uh, ISIS executed 10 Christians in response or in retaliation for the death of their leader. Christians all the way around the world are being persecuted and killed more now than ever in our history. We don't hear about it as much. We read of these books like Fox's Book of Martyrs, and we hear about all the Christians that died for their faith in the first and second and third century. More Christians are being killed today than ever in the history of this world. It's easy for us to say, be bold for Christ. Be bold for Christ when you're facing persecution. Be bold for Christ when you know you could die for it. That's when you know that you're being bold for Christ. And so how silly of us to say, well, I'm just afraid that if I go talk about Jesus Christ at work, they're going to laugh at me. How, how silly of us to think that. Well, I'm just afraid that if I start talking about, you know, them being saved, they're going to they're call me crazy. And How silly. When you have Christians all the way around the world who are willing to die for what they believe in and willing to die for the message of Jesus Christ, that here we are afraid to stand up for the message of the gospel because I'm afraid somebody's going to make fun of me. How silly. How often do we get to work and get shy about being a Christian? How, how often do we pass up on an opportunity to share the gospel because we're afraid of how we're going to be perceived? How often we, we cower against the backdrop of public pressure because we're afraid of, of the consequences of taking a stand for Jesus Christ. Yet so many Christians have never, ever, not even one time, shared the gospel with somebody else. Well, I, I'm just a shy person. Maybe you are. You would never believe it, but I was very shy when I was in high school. I don't know if my brother would remember that or not, but when I was in high school, I was scared to death to get up and give a two-minute book report. You know, I, I didn't go up to strangers and talk to them. And I still, you know, I'm not like, you know, Mr. Outgoing and, you know, just walking up and striking up conversations in the store and stuff like that. I, I mean, it's not out of the question, but you have to make yourself do it. And you know what happens? The more you do it, the easier it gets. The more you share the gospel with people, the easier it gets to share the gospel with people. But if you never do it, you're never going to get to that point. There would be hardly an anti-Bible, anti-God policy that would, be able to put in, that would be able to be put in place if all the Christians everywhere would stand up for what's right. But you know why so many things are being put in place that are anti-God and anti-Bible and everything else? Because all the Christians are afraid of what popular opinion is going to be against them if they stand up for what's right. There are millions and millions and millions of Christians in this country that if we would all stand up, we would be able to block a whole lot of things that are coming down the pike that are anti-God and anti-Bible. But so many of us are afraid to stand up for what's right that they are allowed to push anything they want to push. The reason that abortion is accepted is because too many Christians were afraid to speak against it when the first ideas started coming out about this and you know all these different, uh, you know, this small minority that was vocally for it. Christians were afraid to speak out against it and it was legalized. And there's probably a whole lot more people against it than for it. Same thing that goes for so many of these other issues that are anti-Bible today. Could you imagine being responsible for the legalization of over 60 million murders? In 1973, Norma McCorvey 
fought for the women of the United States to legally be able to abort their children. And she won. Never heard of Norma McCorvey? Probably not, because that's not the name that she went by. In 1973, a couple lawyers met Norma at her work and offered to pay her if she would basically meet their demands and go and fight this case for them. And she needed money, and so she agreed that she would be the representation on this. And one of the stipulations that they put in the contract that she signed was that they would, name, they would change her name to Jane Roe. And that became the foundation for Roe versus Wade in the United States. And in 1973, abortion was legalized in the United States. Since then, over 60 million babies have been killed. She was a feminist. She was a lesbian. She was an activist of liberalism in politics and schools and media. She loved this cause with a fanatical zeal. And she gave her life to the cause of being able to allow women to have abortions. And then she met Jesus. Norman McCorvey in 1994 was at a protest, and a group of pro-life women presented the gospel to her. And she broke down in tears and dropped down on her knees at their feet and accepted Jesus Christ as her Savior. And she denounced liberalism. She denounced abortion. She denounced lesbianism. She denounced all of those things that she had been a champion for. And she devoted her life to getting abortion criminalized in the United States. And she spent the rest of her life regretting the decision that she made to be this name on Roe versus Wade. She called it the biggest mistake of her life. She turned from her lifestyle. She completely reformed her lifestyle, and her identity became not in all of those things, but in God's truth. And more than that, she wrote this. She said, I'm dedicated to spending the rest of my life undoing the law that bears my name. Here's the lesson in that. There's no sin that's too big that God cannot forgive. There is no person that is too entrenched in their sin that we cannot share the gospel with and see them get saved. You think of some of these politicians that are just trying to, to, to destroy this country fundamentally. We think, oh, that person would never get saved. They could. And, and imagine what would happen if God saves somebody. And I'm not going to use names, but imagine what happened if God saved somebody that was high up in a political office and they became a champion for the cause of Christ. Imagine what that could do. Did you ever think... Did anyone ever think that it, when they saw Norma McCorvey in 1973 championing the cause of abortion that she would one day get saved and become a champion for life, for the cause of Christ? No one ever saw that coming. But because there were some people who were commissioned by God to spread the message of the gospel, and they were courageous to stand up to somebody who was such a larger-than-life figure in the United States, she was saved. We have a God that can turn healed to turn hate into healed, turn broken into beautiful, turn monstrous into magnificent. Norma McCorvey died on February the 18th of 2017. There's no doubt in her mind and many other people that, that she's with her creator right now. Norma McCorvey, someone who championed the cause that so adamantly we're against, and yet God saved her. God saved her because a group of pro-life women we're willing to stand up and give the message of the gospel courageously so that Norma could be saved. 
And it's incumbent upon us as Christians that we be courageous for the cause of Jesus Christ. This man in 1 Corinthians, 1 Kings chapter 13 was concealed. He was commissioned. He was confined. He was courageous, but also he was compassionate. And we'll move quickly here, but in 1 Kings chapter 13 and verse number 6, the Bible says, And the king answered and said unto the man of God, Entreat now the face of the Lord thy God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored me again. And the man of God besought the Lord, and the king's hand was restored him again and became as it was before. King Jeroboam was in the wrong. He, was, he had willingly transgressed the law of God and was in sin. And the servant of God could very easily have looked upon King Jeroboam and said, Your hand is withered and that's exactly what you deserve. You're just getting what's coming to you. Because King Jeroboam reached his hand out to, to, to take this prophet and to, and to physically I don't know what he was going to do to him, but he reached his hand out to physically apprehend this man, and his hand withered up in that position. And so now here's the king, the greatest ruler in all of the land, walking around with a withered hand. can't do anything with it. And he goes to this man of God, and he says, pray to, pray to your God, pray to thy God, that my hand would be restored unto me again. And that man of God could have walked away and said, that's exactly what you get. You made your bed, now you can sleep in it. But what did he do? He prayed that God would give him his hand back. And God restored that king's hand back to its normal position. You know, the servant of God could have very easily looked on this backslidden king and, oh, righteous indignation, you know? That's what he deserves. This is what God's judgment is on him. That, let him have it. But he didn't. And a, and a sure sign of an individual who is a servant of God that's in tune with God is that he is going to have compassion. A desirable quality that is seen in this man's life is that he had compassion. He showed great grace to somebody who didn't deserve it. And I think there are a lot of Christians today who would do well to learn from this man's example. You know what happens so often with us, you know, we're earnest for the truth and, and we're willing to stand up for it and we're courageous. But for lack of better terms, there's a lot of Christians that are jerks. There's a lot of people who are being turned away from the gospel because of the way that they see a Christian act toward them. Oh, it's one thing to stand up for what's right. It's one thing to stand up for the truth. It's another thing to stand up for the truth with compassion. That's what the, the motto of our church is. You see it on our bulletins. You see it out in the hallway. Preaching Christ with compassion in the community. Yes, we need to preach Christ. Yes, we need to stand up for the truth. But we need to do it with compassion. That's exactly what Jesus did. We see this all over in, in, the, in the New Testament. But in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. You know what that means? That means these weren't the most upstanding people. That means they weren't, you know, all these righteous people that were trying to follow Christ. He comes out and he sees this multitude and he knows their hearts and he knows they're sinners and he knows what's going on with them and he sees them and he's moved with compassion on them because they're, they're like sheep that don't have a shepherd. They need something. They need somebody. And that's why Jesus healed them. That's why Jesus preached to them and taught them that he is the only way, the truth, and the life, and that no man cometh unto the Father but by him. He wasn't doing it out of spite. He wasn't doing it in anger. He was doing it because he loved them, and he was moved with compassion on them. And that's the same way that we must be moved if we're going to see the lost come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. We could be so much more useful as servants of Jesus Christ if we would try to reach the multitudes with compassion. The last thing that we see about this man in 1 Kings chapter 13 is that he was charactered. I know that's not really a word, but I had to start with a C in order for it to be able to fit. 
This man had character. And look what it says in 1 Kings chapter 13 and verse number 7. And the king said unto the man of God, come home with me. Refresh thyself. I'll give thee a reward. The man of God said unto the king, if thou wilt give me half thine house, I will not go in with thee. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. God told me not to do it. Could you imagine the temptation that that must have been? You're being invited into the king's house. The king wants you to come and refresh yourself in his house. And this man said, I don't care if you gave me half of your house. I'm not coming with you. I can't be bought. I'm not here because I'm trying to get a reward. I'm not here because I'm trying to earn something from you. I'm not for sale. And he was not about to swerve outside of the will of God for his life. King offered him a reward, but this servant of God esteemed the will of God and his own testimony above any temporal gain that he could have gotten. Reputation is precious, but character is priceless. Oh, what people think about you is, is important, but what you really are is beyond what you can even put a value on. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, said this, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. Oh, it must have been tempting. If this was truly a man of God, he probably didn't have a whole lot. And here he's got the opportunity to go to the king's house and get these gifts given to him. And he says, it's not worth it. It's not what God told me to do. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. We're done. But perhaps you're sitting here this morning thinking, how can I be a servant of the Lord? Let me tell you point blank and bluntly, if you've never asked Jesus Christ to be your Savior, you cannot be a servant of the Lord. The Bible gives us two choices. We, we, we read in Sunday school this morning, John chapter 8 and verse 44. It says that there are some people who have the fa their father as the devil. And the lust of your father you will do, it says. There are others who have God as their father. There's no middle ground. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 6, you cannot serve God and mammon. You can't have both. You either have the devil as your father or you have God as your father. And if the devil is your father, then you can't be a servant of God. But once you've accepted Jesus Christ as your savior, God becomes your father. You can be a servant of his. And not just that you can be. You should be. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then it's expected that you'll be a servant of Jesus Christ. But how is your service to him this morning? Are you concealed? Are you worried only about bringing glory to Christ? I can tell you this, you have been commissioned. If you're a soldier in the army of the Lord, and you've been given a great commission, that's to go out and spread the message of the gospel. Are you confined? Are you intent on doing only what God's will is for your life? Are you courageous? Are you willing to be bold to stand up for the truths of the word of God? Are you compassionate? Are you willing to love people the way that Christ loved them in order to point them to the cross? Are you living a life of character? Those are all attributes of a good servant of Jesus Christ. How do you stack up? Are you a good servant of Jesus Christ? Or are you just a halfway servant? Or are you not a servant at all? What a good way to start 2020. Fresh. I want to be a servant of Jesus Christ. Let's focus on being the best servant that we can be for the glory of God as we move into this new year. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Give me thank you for...
your goodness to us. God, I thank you for the time that we can spend together this morning. Thank you for a new year, a fresh start, a fresh opportunity to just reset and make sure that we're serving you the way that you want to be served. Make sure that we're following you the way that you want to be followed and make sure our relationship with you is the relationship that you want to have with us. God, I pray that if there is anything that you've convicted us about this morning in any of these points that we might not be doing to the full capacity, to the full ability that you've given us, God, I pray that we'd be servants that would be willing to be used by you no matter how that has to happen. No matter what we have to give up, no matter what we have to sacrifice, no matter what we have to change, I pray that we'd be willing to do it. I thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, stand at your seats with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, there's no better way to start a brand new year than to start it by accepting Jesus Christ. What a tremendous, tremendous thing to do. But beyond that, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, are you a true servant of Jesus Christ? As the piano plays, the invitation is open.